They still have some years away from broad mainstream awareness for sure, but I think that they're trying to be the likable, lovable brand. They've been very good in terms of marketing in slightly novel ways, spending in ways that other brands might not, have sort of like a, a friendly, you know, huggable side to them. With a, and, and the industry rewards that type of stuff. On this week's show, we ask just how afraid used watch dealers should be of Rolex certified pre-owned. We discuss Oris and Tudor and get another Scottish watch podcaster's view of ceramic watches. Finally, Scotsman Rick gets to talk about the World Cup. Unfortunately, it's with two Englishmen, Rob from WatchPro and Simon from Escape in 24. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. After the last couple of weeks debacle, it was decided that Ariel and David should be roundly fired from the show. And so one was sent to New York where the time zone was inconvenient and the other was sent to a Swiss airport where he couldn't make it. Unfortunately, one of them has managed to survive jet lag late nights and is still here, and that's Ariel. Yes. But I had hoped that by the introduction of two Englishmen, there would at least be, out of one of the two of them, welcome Rob, welcome Simon, one of them that knows something about football. Because for the last three weeks, I've had to speak to Ariel and David and nobody's interested in the World Cup. Please tell me someone else is watching the World Cup. <laughs> well, I have been watching some of the World Cup. Rob? Glued to the England games, being, being down in France at the moment, having to struggle with struggle with VPNs and uh, all that sort of stuff to make sure I could watch it. You'll have the excitement of England-France coming this weekend. So this is the first time you will ever hear a Scotsman please that England have made it through to the next round so that you two are still interested in football. I think you might meet your match this coming weekend with France. So, Rob, are you going to be hiding somewhere, pretending you're French? You're in France at the moment. No, rescheduled my crossing to be home in time for the game. So, I mean, Mbappe looks like the player of the tournament to me, but if we can neutralise him, then we could be okay. Simon, what, what's your takeaway being of the World Cup? Well, I mean, look, I'm the kind of football fan that every proper football fan really wants to hate because... I kind of watch the big tournaments, so I watch the World Cup and I watch the Euros and then I have nothing to do with football in between. Very much a, a fair-weather football fan. Um, and also, I'm half English and half Welsh, living in and an Englishman uh. living in Wales. So I was kind of forced to have to support Wales through all their games, which I was quite glad to do. I mean, their t- team trains at the gym that I go to anyway, so we kind of bump into Gareth Bale quite frequently um, <laughs> down there. Is that not maybe Wales's problem that they're they're training in a public gym? Yeah, that could be it. <laughs> <laughs> we train in a gym where a watch YouTuber trains. <laughs> what is going on? This, again, shows my sort of lack of knowledge of football, really, but I was in there one day, probably four or five years ago, in the changing rooms, and there were guys either side of me. I wasn't really paying much attention, and one got up and left, and the other guy tapped me on the shoulder and he said, that was Gareth Bale. And I went, oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, it <was> just <laughs> completely passed me by. Well, I, I can now relax. So you're off the hook, Ariel. I, I've had that particular itch scratch, so you, you're okay. I, I'm sure you're glad you stayed up till half past two in the morning for that interaction. <laughs> Soccer. <laughs> <laughs> in space, no one can hear you scream. <laughs> Good stuff. Right, well, let's get on with talking about some watches couple audio clips to get us going one is from a friend of the show george and the other from brendan uh, you can check the show notes for links to their instagram channels let's have a quick listen to their audio guess what it's about it's about rolex 
Hey, Blocked Watch team, big fan of the show. Give me my thoughts on the recently announced Rolex certified pre-owned program. On one hand, I think that this will allow Rolex to dictate a price floor, which will protect Rolex retail prices and to make them also look more attractive. But on the other hand, I think it's going to be a little odd when a customer walks in and gets told that the new models in the display case are for display only and that they can buy a pre-owned model that costs 50 to 100% more than retail. Don't really know how authorized dealers will navigate that uh, price disparity there. And also just looking at the book website, there's a Hulk that's being listed for 23,500 pounds and the same watch on the watch find website is being listed for 19.5. So I don't know if the extra 4,000 pounds is justified. I mean, certainly you could buy the watch finder Hulk, send it into Rolex for a full service and get the same to your service warranty that the certified pre-owned program offers. I guess you get a, you know, a white hang tag and a white warranty card holder that you don't get through the regular service warranty process. Anyhow, that's my thoughts. Love the show. Bye. Hey, Ariel, Rick and David. I love your podcast. I just wanted to ask your thoughts on Rolex's entry to the certified pre-owned space. My own view is that this development is hugely beneficial to collectors. It will help them avoid stolen or maybe even damaged pre-owned watches. I also think this is probably good for authorized dealers since they can now carry Rolex, even if all their new stock is like sold out. There's no doubt this is a big change for independent dealers and platforms like eBay. Do you think Rolex will be able to succeed with certified pre-owned? I think what Brendan and George are contributing is probably pretty much where everybody is at. You know, what is all this about? What's happening? Are Rolex going to make money at this? Is the prices going to be higher, going to be lower? Is it going to be a success? All of these kind of things. So let's start with probably the man who's followed this story the closest. And he would like to say he predicted it, but it's kind of like predicting that the Earth will go around the sun. It probably will happen, but we'll give credit to Rob from Watch Pro that he has been writing about Rolex getting involved in certified pre owned for quite some time. So Rob, give us your take on this story. Yeah, well, I did I did write about this first back in April and I was asking them about it at Watches and Wonders and they were saying absolutely nothing at the time and neither were their authorised dealers or anybody else. But it's, you know, there's so many rumours swirling for the last several months that uh, we all knew it was coming. We just didn't know exactly when. So it, it looks like a plan that's been in the gestation for many, many years. And yet on, on day one, it looks a bit like a pilot project because it's only in around about the, the certified pre-owned watches from Rolex are only on sale with Bucra stores in Europe. I think it's around about 30 stores. And each of those stores, I went into the Covent Garden one, looks like it has 30, 40 watches. So we're not talking about, about a massive game changer in terms of volume. But I think we are talking about a massive game changer in that this will develop over the coming years and completely transform the, the pre-owned market for luxury watches, I believe. In five years' time, we will see new watches and pre-owned watches sold side-by-side and authorised dealers for all of the luxury brands in just the same way as you see second-hand Mercedes or Jaguars sold side-by-side in, in authorised dealers for the, uh, next to brand new for in the car industry. So I, th- I think that's where we're headed. Can I ask the question, do you think Rolex are making any money out of this? Because I think folk can't distinguish between Rolex and Rolex authorised dealers. And to my mind, this is being done not necessarily for the benefit at the moment of Rolex, 
but it's been done for the benefit of their authorised dealers that have got nothing to sell. So do you think Rolex themselves, day one of this new arrangement, are actually making the money? Or is it about them aiding their authorised dealers in actually making money in areas they've been unable to so far? At the moment, certainly with this Bucher pilot, they are doing the servicing and refurbishing of, of every single watch. It's not being done at the authorised dealer level although I suspect that that may change. I I don't know for certain, but I would be surprised if they weren't simply being paid a, a fee by the authorised dealer yeah. for, for that servicing, refurbishment and all, all that other, all that servicing and uh, issuing the warranty. So, yeah, I think they'll I think they'll be getting a piece of every every watch that's being resold. Sorry, I agree that they'll be getting a piece from that, but as opposed to it being that somehow Rolex are making a new markup on the sale of the watch. I think the price that's being reflected, yes, there's some built into that of what cut are Rolex taking to service, take it back to Switzerland or London or wherever it's going, and then sending it back out. It's 500 quid, it's a thousand pounds, whatever. I don't know what the cost of a standard Rolex service is, but presumably it's in that region. Mm. But actually, the price difference that's being charged on these CPO watches versus a new watch that is pretty much going to the bottom line of the authorised dealer. Do you think it's Rolex that are setting these prices? Or is it, in this case, Bucherer that are deciding that, as we heard from George on the audio clip there, you can see the same watch from Watchfinder cheaper than you can see it from Bucherer. It's just the Bucherer one has got the CPO uh, hang tag on it. Maybe Rob has additional information here. I mean, this is an evolving story and it's been on a lot of people's minds. And I think that Rolex has obviously said less than they've said. Part of what I've been able to determine is the hands-off approach. This is definitely for the dealers. Rolex is essentially announcing, hey, everyone, at the places where you're already supposed to buy Rolex watches, you're now also going to be able to buy used watches with a real Rolex warranty. And that was essentially the extent of their statement. They talked a little bit about the rollout and they didn't say anything else because I think a lot of the variables that we're talking about, such as the price, are up to the dealer. Rolex dealers have wanted more to sell and they've been trying to get more out of each transaction. By giving them used watches, Rolex not only gives them more to sell and makes the dealers happy, but it doesn't have to produce more watches and it likes that. They already have significant facilities to service watches, so it's not like they have to sort of create new departments for this. It's sort of expanding it. And my suspicion is that Rolex gets to decide what they want to certify as being Rolex you know, CPO. I mean, if there's a watch in particularly bad condition or if it's too old or if it's this or that, they have broad authority in what is or isn't called CPO. And I don't see that control changing anytime soon. I also, unfortunately, don't think that pricing is going to be stabilized as a lot of us suspected it might. Because again, Rolex is saying, okay, someone sends us a watch. We decide whether or not we want to service it. If we do, we send it back with this you know, certified pre-owned thing. We charge a flat fee to the dealer for that. And then they get to sell this. And that's basically our relationship with them. And that's my suspicion of how it is right now. I might be proven wrong. There might be additional details. But from what I've been able to suss so far, that's more or less what it looks like. I'm pretty certain that the dealers are, are setting the price. And by the way, dealers can't set the price. The market will set the price. The customer will set, will set the price. So I, I think this premium that we're seeing at the moment will shrink 
significantly and may even go down to zero because you know there's a lot of places where you can buy watches that are beautifully serviced and refurbished like like Watchfinder or Watchbox or these sorts of places. Yeah. Does the Rolex two-year guarantee mean that much or the tags that you get with it? We'll see. So I've done a survey on customer opinion on, on this and it doesn't look like the customers want to pay a great deal more for the extra tags. They don't. But remember this, remember this, the, the number one complaint over the last several years is there's not enough things in the Rolex stores are empty. Mm-hmm. This is a direct response to there's nothing in there. And they're like, well, here's something. I think sometimes like we tend to overcomplicate it and think about Rolex having this master plan. Like this is something that we know Rolex has been talking about for years. And they just sort of finally caved in and said, okay, fine, whatever. Like, I'm not even sure this is that well planned of a, of a rollout. They're going to do it slowly and sort of see how it goes for sure. But I think that's sort of what's going on. I think you've also got to consider that the number one customer for these watches, I don't think is us. It's not people that read Watch Pro or listen to a blog to watch weekly or watch watch YouTube channels like Simon's. <laughs> it is people who want a Rolex, have the disposal income to do it, don't understand that there are other places you can buy watches online. And if they did, we'd probably be a bit wary of it because they're just not in the arena. But they can understand if they go into this nice building with a Bucherer sign on it and a big Rolex logo that they've seen for years, walking past Covent Garden, through Covent Garden all the time. And yeah, taxly to some of them, doesn't matter if it's used and five, six, seven thousand pounds over what you would get on line they want it there they want it then they want the feel good of the experience they want the feel good of they can kick the door they know where it came from they've got a shop bricks and mortar all that sort of thing and i think this has purely come about because of the lack of stock of the non-watch geek models I don't think Rolex would have done this had there continued just to be a shortage of Submariners and Daytonas. I think this has come about because it's not now that you just can't get a a Submariner without queuing. It's the fact that you can't get anything. D-dates, Datejust, Lady Datejust. There's just nothing in the shop. I think this is a response to like the complete embarrassment of what the authorised dealers have been telling them. You've got to help us here. We have nothing. A guy coming in, 40th birthday present, wedding anniversary, just wants a posh watch, isn't going to shop around for a Zenith or a Parmigiani or a Grand Seiko or something else. All they know is Rolex and we can't sell them anything. And they've got money they want to spend. So here's a way of getting them to part with their cash. So I think if it just continued to be an over-demand for Samaras and Daytona, I don't think this would have happened. I think it's because the bread and butter stuff that Rolex sell is now also not available and this is the the way they're going to get around it. Uh, Simon, uh, as we have seen from the internet, the world is making YouTube videos about this. I think you're possibly the only person that hasn't, which is why we got you on the show. Consider this a reward. Uh, But when can we expect your Rolex video out? Uh, there won't be a video on this one, um, definitely not, because, you know, the thing that gets me is I've been watching all these videos and, and people say, oh, my God, what a shocking thing and how surprised we all are about this. You know, it, I can't see how anyone could be surprised about this um, because of the supply and demand issues with Rolex. You've got this situation where there's obviously a very strong secondary market. Um, some people call it grey market. Rolex and their ADs have sat back and seen this grow. Um, and it'd be interesting to know really how many sales of pre-owned Rolexes there are in relation to new ones, because I would suspect that it's a very, very large number. And why wouldn't they turn around and say, you know, okay, let's, you know, we'll have a slice of this pie. The fact that, as you were saying, a lot of people aren't going to shop around 
for these watches because a lot of people who are going to go in and buy a Rolex aren't going to be enthusiasts necessarily. They're going to be people with quite a high level of disposable income who know that one brand. It says status to them. Um, they want a Rolex on their wrist and they'll go in and pay those prices. Rob, have you had any chats industry-wise or any observations from Bucherer as to exactly how they're going to retail this in comparison to the new stuff? The first thing I would say is that the ABs are over the moon about it, all the, all the ones that I've spoken to. I say again, we're right at the beginning of this. I would say by the end of next year, you're going to be seeing the big multiples going into this. So watch the Switzerland group, Bucher will expand into the United States. Some of the well-funded independents, maybe London jewellers in, in America, the likes of Langs or Preston's in the UK. But they, they've got the freedom to go into this as gradually or as fast as they want to. I mean, if they just want to sort of pick out of a, a Rolex pre-owned catalogue, a couple of a couple of Batmans and a, and a Pepsi, then they're then that's what they'll be able to do. So they don't need that much expertise because the plumbing is all in the background. If, if Rolex continues to do all of the servicing and refurbishment, then you know it's, it's a pretty simple front-end operation. They're free to set their own prices. They're free to look at their own stock levels. So you know, they know their own customers. Retailers are brilliant at understanding what their customers want. And now they've got a catalogue of new, which is on allocation effectively. They don't get to choose what they what they get and they've got used where presumably they will have a bit more freedom. It's just a, it's a, it's a great situation for them to be in. But do you think that Rolex could have done this maybe three to five years ago? Because I wonder whether the situation is such that pre-owned price of Rolex wouldn't have been strong enough to have enabled them to support this kind of um, model. I think in many ways that would have been the, the better time to do it. Again, comparing it to the car industry, if you, if you go into a showroom, you expect the new car to be 20, 25% more expensive than the second-hand car. That's mm. actually what a, nat- a natural market looks like. So I think it, I think this will actually look better and better as the market moves closer to that sort of norm- normality, if it ever does. Maybe I've misunderstood a bit of what's going on here, but it sounded like you were suggesting that, that the stock is being sourced by Rolex because there's like a catalogue the dealers can go to to decide what kind of stock they take on. My assumption was that the the dealers themselves, the bookers of this world, were now going to be trying to source either by trade-in or by just going out to the marketplace used Rolexes that they could then send away to effectively get CPO badged. Effectively, if they wanted to, because there's such a markup over Watchfinder, they could effectively go down the road to Watchfinder, buy all of Watchfinder stock, send it to Rolex, get it back for a grand apiece with all the CPO tags on them, and then mark it up by 16, 17% and uh, flog them. Are you suggesting there's some sort of central? I probably said that wrong. You're, you're right. The actual ADs will will have will own and control the watches through the through the process. They're the watches that, that they would have bought themselves. Yes, I have. No, no problem. Uh, so it does lead me on to a bit of because well, there's nothing like a conspiracy theory that impacts absolutely nobody. This isn't about flat Earth or you know the fall of democracy or vaccines. It's about Rolex. So a good conspiracy theory does nobody any harm. My guess is that Rolex have been planning this for a very long time they've had it in their mind but that the situation has only just become in their heads right for it now i think as you suggest rob the best time would have been five years ago but the best time for most things in the swiss watch industry is five years ago it just takes them that long to actually get around to doing it because they're so cautious i wonder whether this is the start of a really long play to simply remove 
Rolexes as much as possible from anywhere other than Rolex authorised dealers. I wonder whether we're going to see a very big marketing campaign over the next five years. The white CPO hang tag will become known the world wide. And actually what it will start to do is people will simply not want to buy, you know, Rolex will build up the marketing campaign that says only buy a Rolex from Rolex and kind of introduce into this as lack of trust. And I wonder whether it would ever be to the extent that Rolex could in maybe 10 or 15 years time, because they play the long game, they're a watch brand, actually start refusing to supply parts and services to anything that they have not seen eventually come through their CPO program. Or twin track it, if it's a CPO watch, your servicing costs X. If it comes from a different market and we can't trace this watch, somebody will eventually mention blockchain and all of this, Hmm. but I wonder as to... At what extent Rolex may ever say, if you've got a CPO watch, your service is 15% cheaper going forward. And we'll always CPO it when you want to sell it. You know, you can send it back for a piece and we'll refurbish it and blah, 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 blah. It'll be cheaper. But if you send, if we see a watch come in from a third party that's not CPO, actually it'll cost this much to get it served and slowly start to eat away all of those organizations that frankly are making more money out of Rolex than Rolex appear sometime to be able to make it out of their own watches. I think there's a few things to say. First of all, Rolex has already been doing that. For the most part, they want to be servicing Rolex watches exclusively. You cannot buy parts if you are not part of their official network. There is a whole universe of non-OEM parts, aftermarket Rolex parts. A lot of the modern watches, you don't really need parts unless there's something damaged. You can just sort of clean it to get away with it. So, you know, there's still going to be a very healthy, robust market. I I try to make comparisons to the automotive market where you, you do not have CPO completely taking over all used in any way, shape or form. It's maybe a quarter of the market. So I think that this is now Rolex competing in a new area. It's giving its authorized dealers a formalized ability to compete in that area. Because remember, the alternative is the authorized dealers selling pre-owned on the side, which which they've already been doing, not being the quality that Rolex wants, maybe having some aftermarket modifications once in a while. And so Rolex runs the risk of if they don't participate, well, then it's going to happen anyways. And that threatens them perhaps more than anything. The idea that this is happening by their dealers, they can't just cut all their dealers out. But the dealers are like, hey, we're growing businesses. We need stuff to sell. We want stuff to sell. That's what we got to do. And that's that's a huge amount of pressure. So one, yes, Rolex is definitely making it much more challenging and they want to be more or less the only place that you get any work done on your Rolex. But no, I don't think this is going to completely cannibalize the pre-owned market. We don't see analogs to that in other industries that have done similar things. And it's as, as we're seeing right now, there's a cost premium. The dealers have a built-in margin of having to send it to Rolex. I mean, one of the things we don't know is how much it costs to be certified pre-owned. I, I, I don't think that's going to come cheap. I think the dealers have to charge a lot because Rolex is not making it that cheap for them. So this is going to be a premium option for people who want the safest experience, you know, don't want to have any hassles, just want it to be as like, again, as predictable and safe as possible, but that does not represent probably even half. I, w- I would guess this would maybe 20 to 25% of the Rolex pre-owned market in the next few years. And the rest will still be sort of the Wild West. I think what you say is really interesting there, actually, because I think that you're right that there's got to be 
more in this for Rolex than simply giving their dealers more to sell. And I think the point you make is just a really interesting one because this not only gives them more stock, but it also gives them an extra revenue stream, albeit potentially a small one, but by charging their ADs an inflated fee, let's say, to get these watches CPO to to service them, to put them back into saleable presentation standard. And I think that's probably where the benefit, the primary benefit is to Rolex in terms of that, as well as a sort of a small amount element of control and giving their dealers some more stock. Two final questions on this. First, is there a reason that this hasn't rolled out initially in America? Is there something different about the market and the kind of free market side of things in the States that makes this more difficult to do? Or is it just that it was easier to focus on a few stores in Europe closer to home for Rolex. I just thought it was interesting that the USA hasn't been in the first phase of this. Any thoughts? A couple. One thing I do know is that America is definitely gearing up for this. I know secondhand that people in the Rolex service centre, it's just going absolutely crazy with new hiring and equipment and just ramping up the whole operation to be ready. The other one is probably more of a conspiracy theory, which is whether Torno which was bought out by Bucher a few years ago, was was really the big sort of authorised dealer pioneer of, of pre-owned and has its own certified pre-owned thing going on. And that was something that Bucher really liked when it acquired Tornode, was to get that experience. And being ahead of the game, they might just have a lot more stock that they would rather not put through the CPO process with Rolex. They'd rather just sell it first. So it might, it might be a sort of inventory turning issue, but that is a bit of a conspiracy theory. I was going to ask as to, Rob, what your conversation, if you've had any with the used marketplace has been. Are they excited about this? Are they petrified? Are they a bit kind of, yeah, Rolex, this isn't as easy as you think it is? Or are they are they kidding themselves? They're, they're all of those things. I mean, that it, their, their public statements are, are all how excited they, excited <laughs> they are that Rolex is, is waking up and coming, coming over to their side and all that sort of thing. But I, I would be amazed if they're not petrified. Because when when Rolex is basically saying you should, it's, and it's in the press release that you should, customers should buy Rolexes from Rolex authorized dealers, whether they're new or or used. Rolex is going to set the standard. I, I agree with Ariel that there is always going to be space for third party traders who will get more and more sophisticated and will have to sort of rise to the Rolex standards, I guess, which some of them are, are kind of already there. But yeah, it'll be one big ecosystem with authorized dealers and third parties competing. That's why the price will settle. There's so much that needs to be answered. Like where are these watches coming from? Is there going to be an incentive to sell back or trade back watches? You know, is that ultimately going to lead to market health where these watches just sort of have this revolving door lifespan because you know this is this is unprecedented you know certain cars for example can sell multiple times uh, watches as well but i remember as far back as a decade ago certain dealers who would sell pre-owned had these fantasies that they would sell a watch and it would come back to them and they would sell it again and it'd go through 10 hands or something like that and just you know make them a fortune every single time and again there's been this sort of like greed desire to make it happen but i just don't know if that's what the market wants so there's there's a lot of unknowns about how strong the luxury watch market will be and how many new watches the market will be able to go through because again i think that it's safe to say that secondary market watches will always as definition come after the sale of new watches which will probably be the largest revenue generator for the for the companies maybe the bit of the story that's missing is that I can now be a great guy to my authorised dealer and get the watch that we want. 
not because I'm buying stuff from them, but also because I'm selling stuff to them. So does it get me that Daytona I've always wanted? Because actually I can take the the three date just that I've accumulated over the year and sell them to Busherer because actually there's now more than just a financial reason for selling the watch to get the money. If I sell the watch to an authorised dealer, I can also get, I don't know, I'm not sure what the equivalent would be, advanced on their waiting list such as it is to get the thing I've always wanted. I'm sure that's going to be a factor. Yeah, so I'd be interested to see how quickly Booker start to suck in a lot of watches that the likes of Watchfinder, or that actually probably not the Watchfinders, but the little mom and pop shop type, you know, folk that flip 10, 12 watches, the individual dealers that just go around the countryside, to what extent they will start to struggle to get stock because there's more than just the selling price for where you sell your used Rolex to. If you can sell it to AD, you also get favour. Getting favour with your AD is an interesting thing, but I think it's pretty niche. The reality, I suspect, is that the if you're selling a Rolex, the worst price you're likely to get is with an a, is with an AD because that that AD, particularly at the moment, has to send it off to Rolex, get it serviced, get it all back. It's probably three to six months before they're going to see that watch again. Well, we're looking at we're looking at a market that is down a third in the last three months in terms of prices. So they're not they're going to build in that uh, potential downside risk to the to the prices when they're when they're buying it from a customer. And we see we actually see this with Watchfinder as well because Watchfinder checks and services and refurbishes every every watch, which is a cost and a cost in in time. The prices that they off they offer for mm. a Submariner are significantly lower than than your sort of mum and pop traders who are who are going to flip it quickly without yes. much you know with just a bit of a spit and polish. I mean the market will decide, customers will decide at, at the end of the day. At the moment in this falling market, it, people are not going to want to take a lot of risk in terms of paying top dollar for, for Rolex watches. Sure the internet will give us the answer pretty quickly. The first person that goes into Busher and tries to sell them a Submariner and gets offered half retail price for it or gets offered more than retail, it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure we will report on that when we find out bit of good week bad week you reported it in watch pro 12 million pounds worth of watches stolen from watchmaster and as a result they have uh, called in the administrators well we don't know for certain that one one caused the other but it's you know it certainly seems a co- co- coincidence <laughs> of, of timing and you know that that robbery was catastrophic for them i think in, ter- in terms of confidence and cash flow and and everything else so i guess it is the thing that t- that t- tipped them in but it just you know it shows that even the you know scale doesn't particularly protect you from a, a very very uh, difficult marketplace at the moment it's, you know if you're if the value of your stock is is falling by a third in in 3 months you and there are no buyers nobody's buying in this market at the moment so your your business is effectively frozen unless you've got the cash to ride that out you're going to have a big problem yeah so just to touch so this was watch mass or 12 million pounds worth of watches stolen from safety deposits I, I i don't think this was their site i think this was where they stored watches and it was a bigger yeah. raid than just affecting them where are Watchmaster based rob uh, they're based in germany I'm not quite sure which city which city they're in I mean, the, the raid, as I understand it, was similar to the, the Hatton Garden raid. When was that? Five or six years ago? The Americans won't know this. You know, Hatton Garden is like the, 
the diamond districts of New York and a lot of the traders used the same storage facility and it was supposed to be, you know, Fort Knox and completely impregnable, but people people managed to, to break in and, and it sounds like a similar situation in, in Germany with this with this raid. Uh, and while people always go on about storing watches uh, in safety deposit boxes, it's generally the case, I believe. If you store your watches in safety deposit boxes, they're not insured. The insurance is that it's supposed to be impregnable. So you've not got a claim against the safety deposit place for for the theft, as I understand it. I, I still reckon the Scottish storage solution is the best one. Own one good watch, wear it on your wrist all the time. Easy solved. <laughs> uh, rather than storing millions of pounds of watches offsite, just wear one. It's simple. And if it's something really undesirable, like a Panerai like mine, then nobody wants it anyway, so it's fine. I, I think the biggest conversation here isn't, what does this mean for the future of retailers? This is still going to go on. I think the bigger claim and something that we've been talking about is, what is the future of watch security and insurance? The insurance costs too much because none of it is very specialized. There's not enough facilities to store watches. Is there an opening in the market for a business? of facilities and i know that they would be targets <laughs> this is a problem that specialize in watch storage people don't want to store it at home you know i i don't know it just seems like it seems like there's a there's a business model there somewhere for somebody i mean as the stuff comes more desirable it, it is as you say it's just going to become a target you know individuals are being targeted uh you know a, a, a moped gang seeing a fancy watch on a london street can easily try and Steve it, a more organized gang knows that there are lots of these assets being stored in one particular vault. They're highly movable. You know, the Rolex content is basically the same as cash to a large extent. So they know the stuff is very easy to shift. It's not like stealing cars or even jewelry and diamonds because you have to go to the bother of breaking them down. So I sound like I'm speaking from experience here, whereas watches, you know, are very, very portable, very easy just to move on. They can be exported. You know, the watch that's stolen in Germany can easily be being resold in New Zealand or South Africa or LA or even Glasgow. Not that there's any crime in Glasgow at all. Um, people don't realize that to properly store watches and insure them in today's environment with the tools that are available, it's insanely expensive. Insane, like to actually insure a watch for its value is stupid expensive. You would pay the value of the watch pretty fast. Pretty much only stores can do it because hopefully they don't have to hold on to the inventory for that long and thus insure it for that long. Look at the look at the lengths that they go. Every single night they have like an army of people take every single watch and carefully pack them and put them in the back. Every don't you think that's a horrible pain in the ass? But they do it because the insurance <laughs> is so expensive that like that helps reduce a little bit. It's it makes it a little bit you know more difficult. So these are great lengths. I mean they're literally like making stabs go crazy. You've been to stores when they've done the teardown at the end. Like it is it is a routine for them, sure, but it takes forever. It's not that fun. But they do every single day, every single watch. Uh, because of the costs, and so I think that's the tip right now. It's is be innovative with your with your solution. You know some of the traditional ways of of doing this, um, like traditional jewelry or insurance, is is a lot. Um, and for the entrepreneurs out there, you know, think about services that actually save money. Because a lot of the watch insurance right now, if you look at the small print, it's not a good deal. 
and watch buyers are very practical. Yes, mm -hmm. we might spend illogical sums of money on the watches, but as is the case in most hobbies, the, the, the item that you love is, is where you illogically spend. Supporting that item, you, you, you tend to spend a little bit more reasonably. And that's, that tends to be how watch lovers are. So um, I think there's an interesting market opportunity there, and I'd like to see uh, what type of innovation we can see in the next few years. So if you're looking for a partner to promote your new watch business security co-lab hybrid, then do get in touch. Podcasts at a blog to watch.com <laughs> and we'll just take 5% of your business. We're the guards. <laughs> We're the guards. We're going to stand guard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, most recently always laughed at the shock takedowns at night in Rolex when what they're packing away is display models only that have no movements in them. I, I do wonder if in the background they're just chucking them into a bucket with a pillow in the bottom of it, as opposed to what they used to do when they actually had stuff in the windows that worked and that was for sale that they, you know, they would repack it as if it was, you know, the crown jewels. There may be a Ziploc <laughs> bag involved. That might be the, uh, the, the, the secret it. layer. So bad week for that lot. Good week. Well, I think probably a good week in one sense for every watch YouTuber, other than Simon, who's resisted temptation to actually put a video about Rolex. And I also nominate, again, it is a Rolex dominated show. It's just the way it goes. Rolex actually, I think on Watch Pro as well, Rob. Talk of a new one billion production facility so the canton of freiburg is quite happy that's apparently where it's going any other thoughts on good week or something you want to say about the story on watch pro rob well i'd say grand seiko and seiko had a good week opening on mm -hmm. opening a boutique on bond street in, in london yes yep i've been to see it looks great and is it just a Grand Seiko? Bond Street is Grand Seiko on the ground floor and Seiko on the first floor. And if Handsome Rob has anything to do with it in a Grand Seiko, they'll be doing a great job in there. So go and check that out. Any other nominations for Good Week? Nope. No one else has had a good week. England football team has got to have a good week. That will come crashing down come Saturday or Sunday whenever they're playing France, I'm quite sure. Bit of last week's show this week. Quick audio clip from Alex, who, yes does run my favourite, or one of my favourite other uh, watch podcast channels, works for, well, we like to say, we don't really say who he works for, we, we, we just suggest that who he works for is Daniel Wellington. It's not, but he is a sort of watchmaker. It spends most of the time changing batteries, but have a listen to this as part of last week's show this week. Hi guys, it's the Watch Regulator here from Richard's favourite watch podcasts, Robin a Regulator and Two and a Half Watchmakers. As one of the world's most famous artisan watch technicians, I would like to comment on David's take on ceramic watches. I really wish they worked as well as he thinks. Um, they are great until they're not great and then they're basically can never be used again uh, when it comes to actually working on the watches sometimes it can be a coin flip whether it gets through the uncasing and casing up process so i think there's still work to be done they definitely look good but whenever i open a watch box and see a ceramic watch in there it fills me with dread about whether the watch is going to be intact by the time i finish working on it Keep up the good work, guys. Love the show. Alex was just reviewing what David and Sylvain had argued about last week, which was ceramic watches, and was just reeling a bit of his experience of fear and loathing every time he sees a certain brand of ceramic watch 
past his desk and he reckons there's a 50-50 chance but by the time he's tried to uncase it depending on when the last time was it was uncased it will either end up in pieces or survive the experience so maybe as Sylvan suggested last week there is a likelihood that while everyone is selling and bigging up ceramic watches that actually they won't survive the 30, 40, 50 years that steel, gold, all the rest of it, titanium watches are very obviously surviving. I've got the um, Tudor Black Bay ceramic and it's one of the favourites. Oh, it's a great one. Um, Love it, just love the look of it. Yeah, yeah, really, really pleased. I think it's one that will stay for a long time. I do have a fear that I'm going to drop it one day, which I think is really the main risk to ceramic watches, as I understand it. I think in terms of scratching them, they are quite hard to scratch. So I think quite durable in that respect. One of my favorite watches is the, my all my all ceramic Chanel J12, the 42 millimeter one. And I got that one as a used watch and I wear it quite a bit and it looks fine. It looks great. Um, I, I do want to say that not all ceramic seems to age the same depending on the way it's made and especially the way it's polished it ages differently and that's very true but the way chanel does it i think is particularly impressive for me they've consistently had the best ceramic when it comes to the actual anti-aging whereas you see either a matte or a polished j12 even 10 years old and it looks fantastic and really only like that that thin ring of steel between the bezel and the sapphire crystal where you'll see some scratches or something like that otherwise it looks perfect mm, such an underrated watch that one it is and so i think i think that ceramic really is a wonder material i totally get why certain traditionalists are not into it but as a practical urban watch maybe not a tool watch but as a practical urban watch ceramic is in my opinion a fantastic material so Ariel, you have actually done a hands-on review with the very watch that Simon was talking about, the Tudor Black Bay Ceramic. How long did you have this for? So this is a watch I handled not too long. I'd since sort of like seen it on people and thought about it and um, also thought about buying it myself. I think at the time, this watch was easily dismissed because it didn't come out in a trade show environment. It was a sort of a solo unit. No one had seen it. Tudor had been accused of just da 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 black. And everyone's like, okay, great, a black thing. And they were very sort of weirded out by the whole master chronometer thing, which is this, you know, a term that people associate with Omega on a Tudor watch. I just don't think people had any of what to make of it. It was a strange watch. They like to be polite to Tudor. So, you know, nobody really said anything about it then. But, you know, you see the watch and it's got a lot of character to it. It's handsome. You have to be the type of person that likes black watches, but it's not like it's black on black on black. There is, you know, a lot of contrast on the dial, especially with the loom on the hands uh, and the hour markers. It, you know, it comes with the strap. I think the straps that come with it are kind of ho-hum. I actually think there's a lot of cooler straps you might be able to do with it. And again, there is a there's a price premium there. It is not... Not insignificantly more. It's not like double the price, but it's like a thousand dollars, more than a thousand dollars. I don't remember the exact premium over sort of the equivalent Black Bay. Who I think it's cool for is someone who maybe wouldn't buy a Black Bay because a Black Bay is a little bit too basic or entry level or, you know, conservative, but likes it and wants sort of an exotic Black Bay, but also wants sort of like a, a daily sports watch. So it is a cool watch guys watch and and Tudor does stuff like that and it reminds me of some of the same reasons like I like the the left-handed version of the the Pelagos the LHD uh, which is also very cool so I, I I think it's a great watch like that but again you know 
Tudor does not explain. They could have done so much storytelling about why and how they've done this ceramic because it's done so well or about anything about the master chronometer thing. I remember having the meeting with them and asking them to talk about it more and they just sort of shrug and they're like, okay, we're just going to try it and see how it goes. I'm like, really, guys? <laughs> like, that's that's it. So, you know, it's like almost half the fun is our speculation here. I feel like you've just psychologically profiled me there. Oh, <laughs> great. <laughs> but the, the other interesting thing about this watch as well is it's Meta certified, which is the, as far as I understand it, is the only Tudor. But I think, I don't think that Rolex has a Meta certified watch in its range either. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. No, it's just, it's a, yeah, yeah. So Meta's, and again, there was some discussion of this, I have to remind people, is a, is a government certification. Swatch Group worked with the Swiss government to create a, a new certification that anybody can apply for and do. But to my knowledge, Omega was the only company that had a department set up to actually do the testing, right? Because there's no other facility. You have to have your own department, uh, which is certified by the state to properly do it. And But then you sort of have to do it yourself. So we don't know if Tudor set up this facility, has some deal with Omega. It's like, hey, Omega, can we just send our watches to you and do it? It's weirder things have happened, right? Omega would be flattered. Omega would be like, sure. You know, they, they, they'd love that. Or did they set up their own Meta's testing thing and were just able to replicate it? It's, it's really all about anti-magnetism as well as like being able to perform well on different temperature variations and things like that in the case. So it's like, it's way better than COSC. And sorry, just to answer the question, yes, it is the only non-Omega at this point, which is Meta certified. Rob Oris. You have good relationships with Oris. Have they been involved in any of the recent uh, Watch Pro events that you've had on the go? Thankfully, yes. They were at Watch Pro Salon at the beginning of November. So, yeah, they did, they did great. Well, they have the Oris Cool. So, now this actually released a couple of weeks ago. But funnily enough, I have it on my wrist. And I know that Simon has also seen it uh, in the flesh. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, really like this. On the other hand, really don't. It's... It is a bit of a Marmite watch. I love the second hand. I'm not convinced by the dial. The case is wonderful. It's dead comfy. I didn't think it would be comfortable with the the way the buckle works, but actually it's very comfortable. I just think the dial in certain lights doesn't look like a real watch dial. But if you like orange and that kind of gradient, it's absolutely worth looking at. I'm very impressed with the case design. Oris do seem to be stepping up their game. This is another advance in price and advance in technology. What were your impressions of this watch, Simon? Yeah, so I was very lucky to have this watch for about three weeks um, ahead of launch. And I have to say, a little bit like you, when I first saw it, I was, wasn't was really keen on the dial. I think it was a dial that put me off. I love the case, um, but the dial just didn't... There was something about it that didn't feel right. Um, having said that, during my time with the watch and I wore this quite a lot actually so it spent quite a bit of time on my wrist and this watch really grew on me um, so I think that for a start it's a pilot's watch I don't have any pilot's watches in my collection it's not a niche that I've really sort of um, gone down before but partly because most pilot's watches for me are way too big um, you know I mean there are very few pilot's watches that seem to be below kind of 43 44 millimeters so when you've got a, a wrist like mine that's about the size of a mosquito's they just don't really work. Um, so this at 41 millimeters as a pilot's watch, I think for a start really works for me. 
Um, I love the case. I love the fact that they've developed this new technology. So this is a 3D printed case. Um, it uses um, a weave of carbon fiber um, and then a composite polymer um, in between. And I think it gives it the watch not only incredible lightness, um, it's very lightweight, but it also looks really interesting. And then I think really that dial actually grew on me because I think the contrast in the color between the, the rich um, red and orange on the dial and that very matte, dark gray, black case, I think actually just really works. Um, so this one ticks all the boxes for me. Um, and I, I think I should also mention that caliber 400 movement in it as well, which is a fantastic movement. Um, you know, it uh, operates within COSC specifications. It's not COSC certified, but it operates with no specifications, um, you know, and also has this um, immense power reserve, five days, 120 hours. So it's a winner for me. I think the thing that was missing from the dial for me was I think it needs some sort of texture on it. It looks too flat sometimes. Mm. And I'm not sure that there's any or very much anti-reflective coating on it, uh, on the crystal. It does seem very reflective, and I, I'm not sure that helps with the dial being such a flat, although it's a colourful dial, it just, there's no texture on it whatsoever. So I think it would be interesting to see it either with a white dial or with a dial with some sort of texture through it. Ariel, Rob, what's your feeling about where Oris are headed at the moment? They're obviously due to be back at Watches and Wonders. Last year was their first adventure into such a big exhibition you know are they the next brand that really steps up i mean they're not a micro brand they never have been but they're maybe not a brand that's in the public consciousness are they really pushing forward to just being a brand that everyone is aware of you don't just need to be a watch geek to know what an oris is they, they still have some years away from broad mainstream awareness for sure but i think that they're trying to be the likable lovable brand I think they're trying to compete with the big boys. I think they're very proud of what they've done. I think a couple of years ago, they would have had no idea that they've been able to compete at this level being sort of independently owned. I think they got lucky being able to, you know, create this in-house movement and then enter an era when they can actually increase their prices. So they've been able to get away with really kind of doubling their average price point. You know, so I think that they're in a good position right now. I think they have a lot to be proud of. They've They've been very good in terms of marketing in slightly novel ways, spending in ways that other brands might not. You know, for example, these these airstreams that they have in the United States have a few of them. We did an event with them. It's a good spend. Uh, they're really trying to focus heavily on the sort of like do-gooder thing, especially in North America and other places where we give back. We're kind of like we get our hands dirty. We roll up our sleeves. We you know we help out, and it's it's resonated well with with the retailers. I think that's also a strong point. Um, their their product is conservative so they have sort of like a a friendly you know huggable side to them with a product that like you know is very conservative and everyone can like and and the industry rewards that type of stuff they, they need to maintain momentum that's true but they they have a good momentum right now and i think the challenge for them is going to be continuing to support a brand that sustains and legitimizes the price point where the competition is going to start biting them. Because a lot of the competition is still disorganized right now. Like, again, most of Richemont basically still disorganized. And so brands like Oris over the last three years or more have been able to compete in a relatively uncrowded space. When that changes and some of those brands get realigned, as at least some of them surely will, 
I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how uh, Oris relates. We've seen Bell & Ross, which is a very different company, suffer at times when the big brands are very well organized and trying to like kick out the little guy and thrive at times when the big brands are not well organized and not telling retailers to, to you know ignore brands like Bell & Ross. And so the, the retail wars is, is something interesting, especially since Oris, while they do sell direct are still very much a retailer-focused uh, company. The Coulson is very much worth a look at, very much enjoyed spending time with it. I think it did feel and does feel like uh, Oris trying to take the game to IWC in terms of the kind of smaller scale pilot's watch. I think this feels very competitive to an IWC in that kind of uh, case design uh, what they would have in their ceramic cases, etc. Rob, you have followed the Aura story for many years and seen the the, the build-up and particularly their engagement with the community as they have been engaging via the community uh, that you're also involved with in the events, etc. What's your expectations and expectations? I think Ariel read it pretty well and I'll agree with every, everything he said. What I like about Oris, I think, is, is and you see this with a lot of independents, is they have very consistent, motivated people in the organization. So but both sides of the Atlantic, they've had the same leadership teams there for as long as I can remember. And they've built up great relationships with, with their retail partners, with the press, nowadays with social media people, YouTubers, all that sort of thing. So, you know, they really punch above their weight, I think, because of just how focused and determined they are as a as a bunch of people they've increased their prices but in in a way they've been they've they've moved into a very very competitive space you know if you are if you're looking to spend three to five thousand pounds there's a there are a lot of options out there but that's kind of always been the same for oris even when they were a little bit cheaper they were still in a in a tough place but if spending does get squeezed this holiday season and going into next year which i personally think it will, then, you know, obviously it's going to have to work even harder, but but I'm sure they will. Good. Well, thank you. Uh, go, do go and check out that article on a blog to watch and have a look at everything else that is on the website this week. That is us. Thank you, Simon from Escapement24 for joining us. Thank you, Rob from WatchPro for joining us. Ariel, you can go to bed now. What is everybody briefly up to? You pair of English gentlemen are just watching the football this weekend? 100%, yeah. <laughs> what else is there to do? <laughs> so no watch stories for this weekend. Ariel, your day, once you've had a wee nap, is filled with what? You're in New York at the moment? Yes, and the thing that is going to take up my time tomorrow mostly is the store opening for the new Chopard boutique on Fifth Avenue. It's not like they're new to New York. They had a Madison Avenue store, but darn it, they wanted to be on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> and over the last couple of years, a spot opened up and uh, the the family that uh, the Chefellas that run Chopard couldn't be happier. So they're all here for the opening and they've got um, some cool, actually limited edition watches. Finally, the Alpine Eagle now in yellow gold, which again, it's just, it, it's, it's a gold on gold. So gold dial, you know, gold case, gold bracelet. Um, 
it's actually one of the more popular looks for the Rolex president is this sort of gold on gold on gold look. So it's interesting to see Chopard getting into game here because I think the Alpine Eagle is a fantastic contender. Chopard is excellent at delivering experience. You know, I'm thinking about brands that are sort of going to be doing well. And I think the family has said, okay, we're going to focus on the U.S. And what is one of the areas that we can compete? And I think it's service. They're, they treat their, their VIPs very well. Uh, they have a great atmosphere. And, you know, this is, in the next several years, I think we're brands that have a good brand and a good product are going to do well, especially in markets like America, where the, the experience around buying the brand and what the brand means is just as important as the product. And I think it's going to be interesting to experiment to see how they're doing it. So I'm looking forward to chatting with them about it. And I've got some other stuff. And yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting. I guess next week I will actually also be away but maybe these guys will come back <laughs> excellent well thank you gentlemen all for joining us come on england it's the one and only time you'll hear me say come on england <laughs> uh, come on england so yeah have a great weekend gentlemen and uh we'll see you against brazil in the final i'm glad this has been recorded because we can remind you of this in future Rick. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to put this out on monday rather than thursday after you've been <laughs> thrashed by the french good stuff thank you for joining us thank you for listening everybody see you again next week goodbye goodbye everyone Thanks, see you guys. Bye, everyone